If you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 12. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, it's going to be on page 9. Page 9, Genesis chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 20 this morning. Last week, we looked at the first part of this chapter, verses 1 through 9. We looked at Abram's faithful obedience to God's word. We saw how at the bare word of God, Abram left his home in Ur and traveled to a place, the scriptures tell us, that he did not know. He did not know where he was going. One commentator says, faith takes God at his word and obeys. Abraham did just that here. He was, as Hebrews 11 tells us, the man of faith. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, this great chapter of faith, it is Abram who has the, the longest description for his faithfulness. He was a man of faith. We saw last week how Abram entered Canaan and surveyed the, 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 the country and he built altars for the worship of God. Abram, though, we will find out as we read through the, the Bible, never actually possessed the promised land that God had promised to him. And the only thing that he personally ever possessed was a field that was for the burial of his wife, Sarai, in chapter 23. Abram lived in Canaan as a foreigner, as in a foreign land. He lived in tents. Yet Abram was known for his faith. His obedience was a triumph of faith. And yet throughout the scriptures, we see a commonality that after a triumph of faith comes a testing of faith. We could give examples, other examples, but, but just in the book of Exodus, there's this progression where we see it over and over again. You'll remember the children of Israel were in bondage, in slavery in the country of, of Egypt. God rescues them, the exodus. They finally are, are freed, right? There's a triumph. And that triumph is followed by a trial. As they journey into the wilderness, they find themselves against the Red Sea. Nowhere to go. They're afraid. What, what, you brought us out here to die, Moses. What, what are we to do? And yet God intervenes. And they trust God as they walk across on the dry ground of the parted Red Sea. They get through the Red Sea, a triumph of faith. And then what comes next? But there is no water for them to drink. And the complaining begins. God gives to them water for which they drink, a blessing, a triumph, only followed by what? But we don't have any food. We've been freed. We have water, but now we have no food. And then what do we find? God provides. God provides manna, a triumph, followed by what in chapter 17? But the Amalekites who now are warring against them into whom they are afraid. Over and over again, from triumph to trial. Warren Wearsby says it this way, a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. If your faith has never been tested, 
there's questions to whether or not it can be trusted. Wearsby continues, God knows what our faith is. He knows what kind of faith we have, but we don't know. And the only way to advance in the school of faith is to take examinations, end quote. So the testing of our faith then is for our good. It's for our growth. That's how faith grows, is through testing, which is, again, for our good and for God's glory. In verse 10 here, we see the test of Abraham's faith. The test here is that there is a famine in the land. And by in the land, we mean land of Canaan. As in the first nine verses of chapter 12, we can see a description of Abraham's steps of faith as he believed God and moved into what is now, what we now know is the promised land. But in our passage today, verses 10 through 20, could be described as one, one commentator calls them, the steps of unfaith. If the first nine verses are the steps of faith that brought him into the land, the next verses describe his steps of unfaith as we see him leave the land. What we find is Abraham moved away, not just from Canaan, but from trusting the Lord. These steps are steps that you and I are prone to take as well. And so this morning, we we don't sit in judgment of Abram and say, how could he do that? What, 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 what sense does that make? I would never do that. No, rather we, we read this passage. We understand what Abram did, what he should have done, and we acknowledge our own weakness. We identify even in ourselves the danger of unfaith. And we ask that God would give to us the grace that would be like a fetter binding our wandering hearts to him. So Abram's initial step of unfaith is in verse 10. Look at it with me. Now there was famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now the first step of unfaith is the step of unbelief. Now famine is no small deal. It's a big deal that there is a famine. It's a real live threat to life, to their livelihood. One, one that, could, uh, that would occur throughout the book of Genesis. We see it two other times mentioned in verse 26 and in chapter 41 and following. In response to the famine in Canaan, Abram does something. He instinctively moves to a neighboring country. That country is the country of Egypt, where there would have been plentiful or plenty of food due to the Nile River that is in Egypt. What's missing in the description of Abraham's move is any mention of the Lord, any recognition or uh, consideration of God. Since leaving Bethel in verse 8, there's no record of Abram worshiping the Lord or seeking the Lord. What we find is Abram doesn't pray about this decision. He doesn't ask God about this decision. He doesn't demonstrate any trust in God. He doesn't demonstrate trust in the Lord who brought him into the land, but rather he takes matters into his own hands. 
Now hear this phrase in verse 10 that says that he went down to Egypt is not only a geographical uh, indication, which it is, but it's also a spiritual one. Now Egypt is the first, this is the first time Egypt is referred to in the biblical text, but it becomes a, uh, in the Bible, a, a spiritual equivalence for the world's system. So then going down to Egypt meant doubting God and trusting the world. We see Isaiah the prophet say it this way in chapter 31, verse 1 of his book. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. That's exactly what Abram did. It's exactly what he did. He went down to where he thought there were provisions for him and his family instead of looking to the Holy One of Israel, instead of consulting with the Lord first. We should note here that Abram uh, did not forsake or desert the promised land in a sense permanently. Uh, it says that he would go there to, to sojourn, to, to travel there. The intention does not seem to indicate that he was leaving or abandoning the promise of God. If it were, he would have probably went home. He would have, would have went back to, to Ur. But here we see him going down to Egypt. Kent Hughes writes, Abraham going to Egypt was not so much an intentional sin as it was a reflective a reflexive turn to his own devices, forgetting God. We could put it simply as this. Abram had trusted God to get him into the land, but he did not trust him to keep him in the land. He trusted God to get him there, but he did not trust him to keep him there. Now, maybe you know what that is like to have your faith tested. Maybe you know what it's like to go from triumph to trial. And in response, maybe you know what it's like to trust in your own ability, to trust in your own wisdom. And like Abraham, you have found that it doesn't actually work. When we look to ourselves to give us what only God can give us, we are destined for failure and disappointment. God has not saved us for us then to live life on our own. God does not save and then we keep ourselves. No, God not only saves, but he also keeps us and empowers us to obey him, to believe him. How does he do that? But with the grace that he supplies in the spirit, to, the spirit whom he gives to believers. We must not forget God in our trials. God is at work in them. He is growing our faith through them and making us more like Jesus by them. Don't waste your trials. Some of you are in trials today. Don't waste your trials. God is at work in you. Well, Abraham's unbelief only led to, to further steps of unfaith. And here in the following verses, we see things begin to spiral in verses 11 through 13. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. 
when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say, you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. So before coming into Egypt, Abraham comes up with a plan, a scheme, really. His wife is 65 years old at this time, and she is called beautiful in appearance. Now, this is not just Abraham saying something very kind to his wife. We actually find out later that there are other people who think she's beautiful as well. She's 65 years old. In, in her lifespan was 127 years old. So in, in our, our lifespans, it would be like she's 30 or 40, if you get what I'm trying to say here, age-wise. Right? And so Abraham rightly feared that when he got into the land, someone coming from the northern area, she would have looked different than the Egyptian women, and she would have been desirable. And someone would have wanted her as a wife and would then kill him in order to get her. So he comes up with a plan. The plan is to tell a half-truth. What's the half-truth? The half-truth is that Sarai is his sister. Well, it's a half-truth because guess what? Sarai is his half-sister. That's actually true. It's actually true that he is, uh, they, are, they are related. But he does this uh, not in order to tell the truth about their, who they are. He does this in order to scheme, in order to cause deception, in order to trick them. And we come to chapter 20, we're going to see him do this again but we also find out in chapter 20 that it's not even the first time here that they did it. So this is, this is a repeated offense that we're going to see in Abraham's life. He would use this tactic on more than one occasion. Well, Abraham's half-truth uh, was, was meant to deceive. It was meant to trick. And what we find there is that there's no faith in lying. Right? When, when, we're, when we lie, there's no faith there. That's not faith. <laughs> That, that's taking matters into our own hands. Though she was his half-sister, she was his full wife. What's more, though, is that Abraham compounds his sin by inviting Sarai to lie as well. So in verse 13, say, you are my sister. So not only am I coming up with this plan, but I'm going I'm to invite you into it as well. And you're going to actually be the one who says the words. Now, we may wonder, um, how, how, would this, how did he think this was going to work? Like, if, if they were just siblings, what would prevent someone from taking her anyways? Like, why would that stop them from taking her? So, what, 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 would, be the, what, would, what would cause there to be any sense of protection in going with this versus going with we are spouses. Well, one, one writer summarizes the situation in Abram's logic this way. Uh, when there was no father, the brother would assume legal guardianship of his sister, particularly with respect to obligations and responsibilities in arranging marriage on her behalf. Okay? So therefore, whoever wished to take Sarai as a wife, would have to negotiate with the brother. That was Abram. So Abram's thought was then, in this way, he would gain time after they started that negotiation to escape. Right? 
So that was the logic. The logic was this would buy us time. It'll keep us both alive. It'll buy us enough time, and then we'll figure out the rest. James Montgomery Boyce says, whenever you want to do something wrong, you will always be able to find a good reason for doing it. Right? So here Abraham comes up with this plan. This is the way we'll both survive. And we're going to do it by lying. If we can't do it in the light, we ought not to do it. It's a principle of life. Abraham may not have seen these actions as endangering his wife. He may have thought he could protect himself and her. And yet his actions did in fact endanger his wife, as we will see. Abraham clearly was more concerned about himself more concerned about his own well-being than his wife. And in this way, he did not love her well, which the New Testament is clear about how a husband is to love his wife. One theologian says, a husband out of the will of God can bring untold trouble to his wife and family. Here, it is Abram who brings the trouble into his own family. We ought not to think that our sins affect only us. That's a myth. That's a lie. Our sins affect those around us in ways that we can't control, as we see here. Abram's trust was not in the Lord, clearly. He did not trust God's promises. God had promised him already land, seed, and blessing. What does that mean? You got to be alive. <laughs> you have to be alive for those things to be, those promises to, to unfold. And yet, Abram looked at the famine. He looked at the Egyptians, and in fear, he relied upon himself instead of God. This is self-reliance in action. This is, uh, self-reliance is the antithesis of faith. If faith is me trusting God, self-reliance is me trusting me. And that's what we see in Abram. We see a man who was afraid of his circumstances, and he forgot the God who calls us to not fear. Do not fear. God's repeated command to his people. Abram's hope was misplaced. He was trying to live life on his own. Well, as the poet Robert Burns writes, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry, which is what we see in this case. Look at verse 14. We see the tragedy that comes next. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. So Abram was right. His wife was beautiful, and they would want her. So he's, he's right. Like his, his fear of, of them taking her was not unfounded. That was a, a realistic fear, right? But he was wrong about the success of his deceptive plan, right? He, he was right about her beauty and her desirability and the, the potential, but he was wrong about how he went about it. Sometimes we can do, know the right thing, but do it in the wrong way. For all Abram's scheming, he did not consider one important person. He considered the Egyptians, but he did not consider Pharaoh. Why? Why does that matter? Because Pharaoh is the king. 
Pharaoh has royal rights to take a woman unmarried into his house or into his harem. So Abraham was only concerned about the Egyptians who would have to negotiate with him for his sister. Pharaoh doesn't have to negotiate with Abram. Pharaoh's just going to take whatever he wants. And he does. Abram missed the boat here. So here, Sarai, Sarai is the, the collateral damage in Abram's scheme. She's taken into Pharaoh's house or into his harem to be made one of his wives. Well, what happens to Abram? Look at verse 16. And for her sake, he, that's Pharaoh, dealt well with Abram. And he had, this is what he gave to him, sheep, oxen, male goats, male, male donkeys, sorry, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Abram got a dowry. Abram got rich off this deal. Abram got, got servants. He has animals. Having, having a camel at that point would have been not normal for somebody. So he, he gets an increase here. We might look at this and see these as blessings. And yet these gains, these what, what one writer calls ill-gotten gains, were anything but a blessing. And here's why. Because as we start to read the Bible from here, the, the, the blessing, the dowry, the giving of Pharaoh only causes Abram problems. We see it in the next chapter, in chapter 13, with his, uh, with his nephew Lot, as they have conflicts with his herd and Lot's herd. And what does it cause? It causes division. A few chapters later, Abram and Sarai are not having their baby. And so they come up with a plan. And Sarai offers up to him her maidservants, whose name was Hagar, who was an Egyptian, likely given to him by whom? Pharaoh. What may seem like a blessing, what may seem like a gain, may not be. It was not for Abram. But here, the, the broader thought, the plot is thickening because just verses ago, God had made a covenant with Abram. He had promised him land, seed, and blessing. He had promised him to make a great nation. Now his wife is the wife of Pharaoh in a foreign land. Now, we, we should feel the tension. Now, now, we've read the book. Many of us have read the story. We know how it ends. It, it all works out in the end, right? But, but in the moment, we should feel the tension. What, what's going to happen here? How, are, how is God going to make a great nation of Abram when his wife now is no longer with him? If Sarah is now the wife of Pharaoh, what is to become of God's promise to Abram and through Abram? Sin brings consequences, and we should feel the tensions here. How is this going to work out? Abram has, has dug himself into a pit, into a pit that he cannot undo. He can't get himself out of this problem. Some of us know what that's like, don't we? We get ourselves into a problem that we can't get ourselves out of. When the impossible is before us and because of us, when the only way out is for God to intervene. The scriptures do not assure us that God will fix all of our problems. That is not the message here. 
That's not what the takeaway from, from Abram in Sarai either. But he does promise to keep his promise, and he does promise to be with us through it all as he calls us to return to him. Well, in the case of Abram, God had made a covenant. And God takes his covenants very seriously, as you and I ought to take our covenants very seriously. A covenant is, is different than a contract. It's different than a commitment, which there are loopholes. A covenant is between you and God. If we're talking about a marriage covenant, it's between you and another person before God. Our marriage vows aren't, if you, then I will. Our marriage vows is, I will. God takes his covenant very seriously, and he would keep his covenant with Abram as it was not a condition of Abram's obedience. Verse 17, though, shows us how God intervenes. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Now, the losses and the tragedy due to Abram's sin don't just stay with his wife and himself. They now extend into Pharaoh, in Pharaoh's house. Now Pharaoh is being damaged because of Abram's sin. Technically speaking, Abram, or excuse me, Pharaoh didn't do anything wrong. Uh, legally, he did nothing wrong in, in that condition. He was free, by law, to take unmarried women into his harem. He didn't think he was taking someone's wife into his house. But due to Abram's choice, now Pharaoh and his house are being plagued. Our sin has consequences greater than we know, greater than we can control. We do not sin in isolation. We can make choices. We make choices, that's true. But we do not control the consequences. Stories like this, or a story even like Jonah, whose rebellion put a, a ship full of sailors in jeopardy, remind us of the seriousness of our sin. We're seeing it here with Abram. Well, the final step of unfaith in Abram's life was the rebuke from the pagan king. Look at verse 18. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she is your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now we are not told how Pharaoh came to understand that this woman is married to Abram. And yet clearly he comes to understand that this woman is married to Abram. And he exposes Abram's sin by rebuking him. He reproaches him. The reproach of a godless king, a godless ruler. That, that, that's humiliation for, for the man of, man of faith, for a man of God, for a Christian, for a follower of Jesus to be rebuked by someone who does not even follow the Lord. What a humiliation for the ungodly to have the moral high ground against the Christian, against the follower of God. Well, Pharaoh ends the story by expelling Abram from Egypt. Now there, verse, the rest of verse 19, now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And this is a, there, there's a similar, um, similar order or similar idea here in the end of verse 19 with what God says to Abram 
in chapter, 11, chapter 12, verse 1, when he says, go, go, or leave the country. Now here, Pharaoh is saying the same thing in a similar way uh, as the Lord said it to Abram to begin with. But take your wife, uh, take her and go, verse 20, and Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, concerning Abram, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Now the implication is that Pharaoh didn't take back what he had given to, to Abram. Abram, here, the man of faith, we see him stumbling in his faith as he was tested. As his faith was put to the test, Abraham stumbled. He wasn't prepared, clearly. He wasn't ready for it. And most of us aren't ready for it when, when the triumph is happening. We think of someone like Elijah, who has the Mount Carmel experience, and then quickly he is confronted with Jezebel, and he, 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 he wilts, he falls apart. From triumph to trial, we're often not prepared for it, and Abram was not prepared for it. The famine caught him off guard. The trial caught him off guard, and his faith failed. This testing proved Abram's faith needed growth. It needed maturity. As his natural response to trials was not to trust the Lord, but was to trust himself. It was self-reliance. Theologian A.W. Pink writes, the failure of Abram is a solemn warning against being preoccupied or occupied with circumstances instead of with God. When we are more concerned about the circumstances we find ourselves in than God himself, we are in trouble. Now this is a pretty depressing end of the story but it's not the end of the story, in fact. And again, we, we will remind ourselves that the chapter headings were not in the original text. So we have a, a division here between chapter 12 and chapter 13. We can kind of lop it off there, and then we'll come back to it next week. But if, if you keep on reading into chapter 13, verse 1, you read this. So Abram went up from Egypt, and he and his wife, and all they had with Lot, and Lot with them into the Negev. Verse 2, now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. What are we seeing? We're seeing a return. We're seeing Abram who went down to Egypt, now returning to Canaan, to going to, to Bethel, to the place where he had called upon the name of the Lord. Abram failed. He failed terribly. And we can all take lessons from that, and we should take lessons from that. But we also find that Abraham learned. Abraham repented, and he returned. We did a study through Revelation 2 and 3 few weeks ago. That kind of sounds familiar to what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus. Remember, repent, and return. That's the same thing he says to us. Remember. Remember where you used to be before you fell. Repent of what you've done and return to me now. Abraham did this. And this would serve as a new beginning for Abram. There is hope for failures. There's hope for failures. 
There's hope for failures like Abram, and there's hope for failures like you and me. Failure need not be the final word. Our past, our past sin does not mean that God is done with us. One pastor says, past sin and failure do not preclude future faithfulness and success. That's a good word. And we see it all throughout the Bible. The Bible isn't full of spiritual giants who never fell. That's not true. When we think about the giants of faith in, in, in a place like Hebrews chapter 11, we look at them and say, man, what, they are known for their faith. Yes, they were known for their faith, but you know what also? They failed a lot. The question isn't if we're going to fail. The question isn't if we're going to sin. The question is what do we do when we sin? Do we repent? Do we return? Is the trajectory of your faith going forward or is it going backward? God is faithful. God remains faithful. God is merciful. He is patient. He is slow to anger. He invites us for any who would confess their sins that he will forgive them. He will cleanse them from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9. The response to our failure is not to live in despair, not to think how bad I am, how much of a failure I am. That all may be true, but we don't live there. Rather, we repent. We ask God to forgive us. And as Jesus Christ has died for our sins, he dies for all our sins. Christian, he died for all your sins. Those are past sins, present sins, and future sins. That doesn't give us license. Some people hear those kind of things and think, well, that just means you can sin and it doesn't matter. That is not what we're talking about at all. That's not what the grace of God is about. That's an abuse of God's grace. It's actually an invitation to say God so loves you that he's going to forgive your sin, past, present, and future. How does that affect you? I'm gonna keep on sinning? You don't, you don't understand the love and grace of God at all. That love and grace of God would cause me to say, you know what? I could sin and God will still forgive me. But it's for that very reason that I don't want to sin anymore. I don't want to abuse that grace. I don't want to abuse that kindness, that mercy, that love. The response to our failure is to repent to seek God's forgiveness, and to begin again. Or for some in the room, is to begin for the first time. Some here who have never repented. They, they've never come, you've never come to Christ in faith. You've never trusted Christ and Christ alone for your salvation. You've never recognized what Paul says in the book of Romans, that all have sinned, and the penalty of that sin is death. But the gift of God, which is Jesus, is eternal life. Eternal life. How's that eternal life come? But through Christ. And what does Christ say in Mark chapter 1, verse 15? Repent and believe the gospel. That's the invitation. The Bible is not that we're all good and that we're all, we're all going to be fine. No, the Bible is that we're all failures, all of us. We've all failed. We've all fallen short. So the invitation of the Bible is to come to the one through whom you can be forgiven and empowered then 
to follow him. Whereas Abram was unprepared, you and I can know today that trials accompany faith. And so we are to expect trials. We don't want them. No one's out there seeking trials. But we can expect them. And we can expect them not because God is against us. Romans chapter 8 says, he is for us. Who can be against us if God is for us? So the trials aren't because God's against us, but rather because he is for us. They're actually meant for our good. They're meant for the growth of our faith. James chapter 1 says, Count on all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be complete, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's maturity. Maturity of your faith. We can learn from Abram. When we are out of God's will, we will not be in fellowship with him or with one another. Abram's steps of unfaith began in unbelief. It began when he moved away from worship. And so it is how our steps of unfaith begin as well. But we may wonder this morning, how can I endure? How can I endure? How can I keep the faith, so to speak? Well, we look to Christ. We must turn to Christ. We said last week, but Jesus is the true and better Abram. We don't look to ourselves We don't look for ourselves for the faith to sustain. We don't look within ourselves. No, we look outside of ourselves. We are the problem. We need help from outside of ourselves. And that's why Jesus has come. Jesus has come to be the help that you so desperately need. He is the one who faithfully suffered to keep the promises of God here in Genesis chapter 12. He is the one who perfectly endured the temptations and trials of life like you and I faced in order to fulfill the law of God, God's word. And so we look to him. We look to the perfect, spotless lamb of God who paid for our sins. We look to him in faith to empower us to live by faith, empowered by the spirit that is within us today. Look to Christ. Look to Christ and walk in faith. May God help us. Let's pray. Father, we can't do this on our own. Abram is a clear example that we cannot do this on our own. Anyone who thinks they can do it on their own is deceived and destined for failure. So today we admit, we confess that we can't do it. And yet what you call us to, to, you equip us for. So we can't But through Christ, we can. Christ is our hope in glory. Christ is our hope in this life and in the next. He is the hope for a faithful life. He is our hope that one day when we appear before you, we can hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Not because we're so good, but because Christ has already done the work and now enables us to through his spirit. Would you help us to look to him today? We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Our God, you are-